the minute you let a government have the veto power on the oversight by media, civil society, even the diplomatic community, is the moment that you basically foreclose the ability to have independent oversight over things like human rights practice. Welcome to the 972 Podcast. I'm Henriette Chakar. And I'm Ido Conrad. On the podcast, we'll be interviewing activists, politicians, and journalists about issues and stories that other media outlets tend to ignore. Henriette, what are we talking about this week? So I traveled to Ramallah to talk to Omar Shakir, the Israel-Palestine Director of Human Rights Watch. He's the person the Israeli government has been trying to deport for over a year, right? Right. Omar's case has really become a watershed moment for democracy and free speech in Israel. Why is that? So the state is arguing that because Omar, in his position at Human Rights Watch, has called on companies to refrain from doing business in Israeli settlements, he's essentially calling for a boycott of Israel as a whole. And that's grounds for deportation? We'll know only after his next hearing, which is set for November. But that's precisely what his case has become about, the limits on criticism of Israeli policy in the occupied territories. I talked to Omar about what this process has been like for him and the impact this crackdown has had on other human rights groups, especially Palestinian and Israeli activists. Here's my interview. And don't mind the honking and street sounds. We recorded near a busy street in Ramallah. Omar, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Thank you for having me. So Israel is trying to deport you, but most recently the Israeli Supreme Court froze your deportation. Your case can be a little confusing. Tell us what's happening. So the Israeli government ordered my deportation in May of 2018. Uh, They claimed at the time that I call for boycotts of Israel. They focused largely on my activism before I joined Human Rights Watch. They gave me 14 days to leave the country. The day before I was due to leave, a district court froze enforcement of the deportation until the end of the case, until our legal challenge to the deportation had been heard. That case proceeded for nearly a year. And in April, the court upheld the legality of the deportation and again gave me two weeks to leave the country. Now, the court's decision largely focused on Human Rights Watch's research and advocacy on business and settlements claiming that that work was actually a call for a boycott of Israel. Uh, we have appealed that decision to Israel's Supreme Court, and we that case will be heard in the coming weeks. In the meantime, the Israeli Supreme Court has issued also an injunction that says that the deportation will not take place until it has heard the full appeal. Now, this is merely the latest incarnation of an attempt by the Israeli government to muzzle Human Rights Watch. In 2017, they actually denied the organization a permit to hire any foreign employee, arguing at the time that Human Rights Watch was a propagandist for Palestinians and not a real human rights organization. So this is part of a months-long, actually years-long effort to muzzle Human Rights Watch with the argument shifting from propagandist to me calling for boycotts before Human Rights Watch, to right now where we're at, where the, where the court has essentially put its stamp on an argument that human rights advocacy, calling on businesses not to violate rights, 
is a call for a boycott under Israeli law. So there's a lot to unpack here, but I first want to discuss the specifics of your case. It started with Israel not agreeing to renew your work visa, right? It actually began with the Israeli government revoking my existing work permit. Um, What happened was there was a court case filed by an organization with ties to the settler movement, Shirat Hadin, against the Ministry of Interior, alleging that they had violated at the time the newly passed 2017 amendment to Israel's law of entry. That litigation in the District Court in Jerusalem triggered an investigation that lasted months by the Interior Ministry, in which they consulted both the Foreign Ministry and the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, and that investigation led them to decide to revoke my current work permit. Of course, we had in the meantime that the investigation was going on, requested an extension of the work permit. But their decision was to revoke the existing work permit, and that triggered the litigation um, that we've been in since. And that was the first time that Israel had revoked the visa for someone who's already in the country, right? That's the first time that the Israeli government had used a 2017 amendment to its law of entry, uh, which calls for denying entry to those who publicly support calls to boycott Israel to um, deport someone legally present in the country. It's also the first time in the nearly three decades that Human Rights Watch has been working on Israel and Palestine that the Israeli government has blocked access to a staff member to Israel and the West Bank. Gaza, of course, is a different story. What was the Israeli government's reason to doing that? What, how did they justify that decision? The 2018 decision, the original decision to revoke the work permit, was largely based on an intelligence dossier compiled by the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which largely looked at my activities before I joined Human Rights Watch. So it included such evidence as screenshots of websites from when I was a student at Stanford University, petitions I've signed over the years, tweets that I've posted uh, before I joined Human Rights Watch, and also included um, some of my work in Human Rights Watch and a recommendation issued by the Minister of Strategic Affairs, Gilad Erdan, who is politically very close to Benjamin Netanyahu, that called for that work permit to be revoked. Interestingly, that dossier also included a line saying that the foreign ministry objected to the deportation because they thought it would hurt Israel's image uh, in the world, uh, both diplomatically and in press coverage. And it's also interesting because, at least based on um, interpretations of the law up until now, the law applied only for people who actively call for boycotts of Israel, right? Not retroactively to previous activity. That's correct. The law itself is actually quite vague. Uh, It doesn't actually go into great amount of detail on what the standards would be. However, the Interior Ministry issued guidelines for how to interpret that law. Among the things identified in the guidelines is a statement that support for boycotts must be active and continuous. And in an October 2018 case involving Lad al-Qasim, a Palestinian-American student who had been denied entry to study at Hebrew University, the court interpreted that Um, those guidelines to have the force of law and to basically involve a case in which somebody uses their physical presence in Israel to call for boycotts. You know, a lot of people in this case would ask, what's the difference between the work you do at Human Rights Watch and boycott advocacy? 
That's an important question. Um, Human Rights Watch takes no position on boycotts of Israel. This isn't some special Israel policy. It's part of how we do work everywhere in the world. What we do is we document the human rights abuses of all actors, including companies. In fact, we have a whole division on business and human rights. And we call for companies to adhere to their obligations under the UN guiding principles and to international law more generally. What we found through the course of years of working on Israel-Palestine is that inherently any business that operates in a settlement invariably benefits from and contributes to serious violations of international law and abuses the rights of Palestinians. They do so in several ways, right? Any company operating in a settlement gets a permit, gets infrastructure and resources that are denied to Palestinians who live there, who can't get a permit to build, to establish a business. They also are operating on confiscated land. The businesses also pay taxes to the local settlement municipality, so in in essence, helping to further entrench the settlement system, and they partake in a two-tiered legal system where employees that work in a business in a settlement, if they're Israeli, are treated under Israeli civil law, if they're Palestinian, under military law and the law that existed before 1967. Based on that, we've said that businesses cannot operate in settlements and adhere to their obligations under the UN guiding principles. However, that is different than calling for a boycott of Israel or even calling for a boycott of the company themselves. We're telling companies not to abuse rights, which is different than telling consumers not to, um, you know, to, to boycott that company or telling individuals not to perform in, uh, uh, performances in Israel, etc. There's a distinction between uh, work that calls on all actors to respect human rights and those that call for boycotts as a effort to build pressure um, that calls for a particular political outcome. So really the state of Israel is making two arguments here. One is against you specifically by citing some of the activism that you've done before joining Human Rights Watch in your student days. And then the, the state is making another case against Human Rights Watch as an organization, more pertaining to the things or the reports that Human Rights Watch has put out about um, companies working in settlements and the illegality of that when it comes to human rights. I actually think it's part and parcel of the same project. Originally, the Israeli government tried to block Human Rights Watch from operating in Israel-Palestine. That backfired. They reversed. Then they thought it was easier to go after what my attorney called in court the small Satan, me, by focusing on me and my prior activism without making a broad-based determination about Human Rights Watch, which is more likely to generate bad press. Um, We challenged that in court among other things, pointing to the fact that the law requires active and continuous support for boycotts in order to sustain a deportation or denial under the law. So then the judge ultimately said that Human Rights Watch's work itself constitutes a call to boycott Israel. So the reality here is the argument has shifted, but the objective has always been the same. It's to muzzle Human Rights Watch and to stop our advocacy on issues that the Israeli government doesn't agree with. And the decision by the district court is quite dangerous. The court went beyond even the government's argument. What the court has essentially said is that today, if you call for boycotting a company because they abuse the rights of workers, that's totally permissible. But if you call for boycotting a company because they abuse the rights of Palestinians, that's impermissible. They're essentially creating a category of advocacy that is not allowed under Israeli law. And the implications are quite dramatic. 
today the political litmus test to enter Israel seems to be support for boycotts. Could it tomorrow be calling for the International Criminal Court to open an investigation or even calling for a withdrawal of settlements or saying the West Bank is occupied? Today, these restrictions are being used to block uh, somebody from entering the country. Could it tomorrow be the basis to restrict the activities of Israeli and Palestinian rights defenders? Quite clearly, the court, by putting its stamp on the government's campaign to silence those that are critical of its policies, is starting, is continuing down a path that could have much wider implications. And that's exactly why the case in front of the Supreme Court is incredibly important. Would you say that's an escalation? I mean, Human Rights Watch isn't exactly a small NGO. It's, it has a global reputation. The government has been quite consistent in its efforts to muzzle those that are critical of its policies. For the court, though, to put its stamp on a campaign of this sort is an escalation, and it threatens to further shrink the limited space that remains available for advocacy around Palestinian rights in particular. If we place your case in terms of what's happening around the world, the timing is really interesting because we're seeing a hardening of borders worldwide. Do you think your case is related to the Muslim ban in the United States? Do you think it's connected to recent U.S. visa refusals for high-profile Palestinians like Omar Barghouti and Hanan Ashrawi? We're certainly seeing a context of a populist wave globally, a populist wave that's defined itself virtually by antagonism to universal values, by a disdain for human rights, for transparency, for the basic institutions and norms um, of international law. Certainly that context has taken place in the MENA region. We see it in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, we uh, in Syria, we see it in Russia, we see it in Brexit, in Europe, and certainly in the United States. So I think there's quite clearly a pattern of um, not only restrictions on uh, movement and entry, but a larger sort of disdain for transparency, the way in which, you know, uh, the Trump administration, not so different from a tactic used by uh, by Benjamin Netanyahu and others, of, in essence, dismissing those that are critical as being dishonest, untruthful, fake news. That's a pattern that's expanded, and it's gone beyond journalists to human rights advocates uh, and many others. And of course, it's not unique and new in the Israeli context. The Israeli government, let us not forget, has imposed a generalized ban on travel into and out of Gaza for over a decade. A generalized travel ban, not based on an individualized security assessment, but a blanket policy. So it's certainly in the in the Israeli-Palestinian context is a tactic that's been used in many other ways, mostly involving Palestinians. We now seeing seeing it increasingly used with internationals, and it's certainly a trend that has corollaries in other contexts. We just news reports in the last few weeks have shown that the United States, for example, is now asking as part of a visa application process for the social media profiles um, of individuals, not so different than a court case in which I sat and a court poured through my tweets and where a judge in her decision in the district court very honestly says that she watched my speeches and noticed the tone in which I spoke, which was one of the criteria that she took into consideration in making a decision to uphold the deportation. Speaking of the U.S. government, to date, no senior official in the Trump administration has commented on your case. Why do you think that is? 
We've certainly seen the United States been active in following the case. Uh, The U.S. Embassy attended uh, the court hearings in this case. We also, the State Department, as reported by the Associated Press, uh, in May issued a statement where they said they're following the case um, and that uh, they support free speech, even in cases where they disagree with that speech. We've also seen a number of U.S. Congress people write a letter to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu expressing their concern on the merits, I think, like many the United States government is following closely what the courts will do. And I think uh, statements from many other government actors um, will certainly become sharper if the Supreme Court upholds a dangerous decision by the district court. So what happens in this case? I mean, if Israel decides to deport you, what does this mean for Israeli democracy? The reality is Human Rights Watch works in nearly 100 countries across the world. Unfortunately, in some countries, countries like North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, governments block our access. But that doesn't stop us from doing our work. We will let no government, certainly not the Israeli government, decide who covers the region for Human Rights Watch. We'll continue to do the same work using the same tools, covering the same subject with the same tenacity and the same vigor and the same objectivity that we do in every other case. Now, I'd be lying if I would say that it's not going to make our work more complicated. Uh, Not having... Uh, me as the country director on the ground means it's more difficult to engage governments, not only the Israeli government, but the Palestinian Authority, Hamas authorities in Gaza. It also means has security implications for our local staff and makes it more difficult to connect with Israeli and Palestinian victims, civil society members and larger stakeholders, including media sources. But we've seen this happen before. It's not my first time either. I was uh, forced to leave Egypt as a result of the work I did for Human Rights Watch, documenting mass killings of protesters in 2013-2014. The Bahraini government denied me uh, entry in 2017 when I identified myself as a Human Rights Watch researcher. And previously, before joining Human Rights Watch, I had to leave Syria because of uh, some of the things I had written there. So certainly, it's not a, something that's new to Human Rights Watch, but for it to take place in Israel, a country that proclaims itself as the region's only democracy, for it to deport a rights defender by their own admission for his peaceful expression, I think is a damning indictment of where uh, the country is today. Those that are concerned about Israel's commitment to basic democratic values should be concerned. Why do you think it's happening now? Do you think Israel feels empowered? I certainly think the international climate is part of it, but it's also part and parcel of a progressively uh, expanding strategy. We saw in 2011, the Israeli government passed an anti-boycott law that imposed um, civil penalties on certain categories of people who call for boycotts. They built on that law in 2017 by passing an amendment to the law of entry that denies entry to those who call for boycotts of Israel. Now, the 2011 law made clear that it should only apply to those whose boycott call was solely based on the affiliation of somebody to Israel or territories under its control, which should preclude, for example, a human rights-based boycott, because it's not a boycott based on the fact of being Israel or in a settlement. It's based on the illegality and the human rights abuses. Of course, again, Human Rights Watch um, would not character. We do not characterize our work as a call for boycott. We're simply telling companies not to abuse rights like we tell governments and many others. But even if you were to characterize a call as a call to boycott, say, settlements, the reality here is that even the 2011 law was not meant to apply to human rights 
uh, based calls. And I should add that our lawsuit challenges the legality of the 2017 amendment altogether, saying that it violates Israel's constitutional tradition to be deporting or even denying entry to those based on a political litmus test, a political litmus test that's one-sided and only applies to one side of the political equation. You spoke about how Human Rights Watch will still do whatever it does, even if it becomes more challenging. But what does this you know, look like technically? Will you still be working on Israel-Palestine remotely? Will someone else replace you? Will Human Rights Watch still even operate in Israel-Palestine? We'll certainly continue to cover Israel-Palestine. I intend to continue doing the work I've been doing here, uh, even if not on the ground uh, in Jerusalem. I will do continue to do the same work from the outside, you know, with our local staff um, and with others helping to cover it as well. That won't change. We won't give a government a veto power on the staff who's here. Imagine again the implications. Tomorrow could the same rule be used to apply, for example, to a member of uh, the press corps or a, even a diplomat who might have had prior activities the government disagrees with or says a statement that the government feels was unbecoming of it. The minute you let a government have the veto power on the oversight by media, civil society, even the diplomatic community is the moment that you basically foreclose the ability to have independent oversight uh, over things like human rights practice. Omar, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by Ido, Conrad, and myself. Hey, Ido, you know what? What? This is our 10th episode. You're kidding me. You know what that means. It means it's time to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. What are we going to talk about in the next episode? I headed to Jerusalem to speak to Israeli attorney and human rights activist Itai Mack about his efforts to force the Israeli government to come clean about its exports of arms and military training to various governments around the world, including dictatorships that routinely violate human rights. Can't wait to listen.